Hey, I'm Shania. And I'm Evita. You are listening to the 14th episode of Making It, Women in Film. A podcast where we sit down with women working in the film and TV industry to talk about their journey, experiences, advice, and the importance of diversity in front and behind the camera. In today's episode, we're going to be talking with Naomi McDougall-Jones. Naomi is a long-term activist for women in film. She is an actress, screenwriter and producer of her two films, Imagine I'm Beautiful and Bite Me. She's also the author of the book, The Wrong Kind of Woman, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We're really excited to be talking with you today. I first came across you with your TED Talk about the revolution of women in film. And I got to say, like, that nearly brought me to tears. Like, it oh, hit so home. And that was just as we'd started this podcast that I came across it as well. I was like, wow, this is everything that we just... Uh, talking about and we I just knew we had to talk with you um just to start off so we all know this is a tough industry especially for women and to be successful in this industry you need a, a passion and a drive so I'd love to hear what drives you and what's your um your motivating force to um have a career in this industry I, I knew I wanted to be involved in theater and film from the time I was I think four years old um, some of the story my mom tells is that she took me to see the Nutcracker when I was four and I, and in the middle I stood up and went, I want to do that. <laughs> um, and so I think it, like, what is that? I think that's, I think I'm a born storyteller. I think that's the thing I'm called to do, but I think what's kept me going in an industry <laughs> that is brutal to women, um, and to a lot of people is that is my profound belief in the power of stories to move the world and to shape the world. And I think um, even now, as I'm I'm calling in from America where everything is melting down, (laughs) Um, but even in this time where it's like the stakes of everything feel so huge and you could say like, well, do stories really matter? Like, you know, and and the thing, the answer I keep coming back to is yes, they absolutely do because they're the things that shape the stories we choose to tell about ourselves and each other shape everything from our neural pathways, literally inside of our brains to how we think about ourselves and each other, what we choose to pay attention to, what we don't. And I think the beautiful thing about fiction is that it can change people's minds while they're not paying attention. <laughs> For for better or worse, right? And this is the problem right now and historically, but, um, you know, where where people are going to seek out the news they want to listen to that, that agrees with their opinion, they're not, and that, you know, that they may not seek out to be educated about something if you can tell them a story that's engaging, but then, but then the values that that story um Uh, aligns with and puts forward I think it's the most powerful tool we have to change humans yes yeah I definitely agree with that um also after watching your TED talk I learned you had a really interesting reason why you decided to become a filmmaker so would you like to tell our listeners how you got started in the industry and why you eventually decided to get into screenwriting and producing 
Sure. Yeah. So I started off as an actress, which I think happens to a lot of us women, because I think when we're young and we discover that we're storytellers, people go, great, go be an actress. because That's what women do. Um, and so whereas, whereas with little boys, I think they're like, oh, well, would you like to be a writer or a director or, a, you know, or an actor? So I went to acting school and got out uh, of college and in New York City and was, you know, auditioning for five to 15 roles a week and, you know, really pounding the pavement and just very quickly became pretty stunned by the roles available for me. You know, I had come to like tell stories that I cared about that mattered to people to play characters that could change, that could move the world and change people. And instead I was auditioning over and over again for like the stripper with a heart or uh, the really supportive girlfriend who's there to emotionally support the main character or naked corpse number five. And I was just like, like, what are we doing after about two years of that? Cause it, I was just, I just kept looking to my left and right and seeing these incredibly smart, beautiful, talented women who had so much to contribute to the world, but just kept getting like slotted into the dumbest roles you can imagine. And so, uh, so then naively I thought, oh, well, the problem must just be that people aren't writing good enough roles for women. I could write better roles for women than this. So then I became a screenwriter and a filmmaker. And then, and then the other shoe dropped and I realized that actually women are being systematically excluded from being writers and directors and producers. And that is why the roles are so dumb for women on screen. <laughs> yeah it's also I we'll talk more about your book later on I have it here fantastic like honestly <laughs> ah chills throughout the entire read but we'll get to that later but you talk about typecasting and you talk more specifically towards when it's from people of marginalized groups stereotype casting Mm-hmm. What are some improvements that you really want to see here? Because we've talked, like, I think, uh, like, two episodes ago, we ranked, like, stupid stereotypes for women. <laughs> and it's just, uh, we, we tried to rank them from worst to, oh, not so bad. But what we saw was just like, no, they're all shit. Because it's not only as an actress you see, oh, I just have to do this. But as the little girls, when they watch, that's all they see. They just see, oh, totally. You know, she's strong, but uh, the only reason she's also strong is because she's wearing like really tight jeans. And, you know, like this, (laughs) (laughs) it's just like so, so bland and so flat and with no actual character within it. Um, What are your goals within screenwriting there? Um, Well, my goals is that female (laughs) characters would be actual human beings. Yes. (laughs) It's shocking, I know. Yeah. yeah, like, mm-hmm. and I think I think we've gotten into sort of like, so because in Hollywood, they've gotten screamed at a lot in the past five to ten years for having really dumb female roles and very few roles at all for people of color and women of color. So they've they've sort of been scrambling to like get basically to get people to stop yelling at them about this. So, so now what you do see some progress in is that you do see more women in leading roles. You do see more um, people of color in leading roles or, or bigger supporting roles, but the, but the, but the hurdle they can't get over is that they, it's still the white guys telling those stories and writing the stories and designing the characters. And, and so, so then they put more, (laughs) they, so they sort of like write 
the stereotypes into bigger roles. And then people still yell at them and they're like, why are you still yelling at us? And we're like, okay, well, we need more strong female characters. And then they like write these strong female characters, except then they also like have to be wearing spandex and, um, and also then are like fall into this weird sort of robot, like strong female character who like is basically a dude in with a vagina and like, you know, it, and, and then, so then we're like, no, no, so it's not quite that. And they're like, what are you doing? We're like, well, what do you want? We, we wrote you a strong female. It's like, oh my God. So <laughs> I think the point is that we need, you have to fix the behind the camera problem, right? You have to have more female and, and, and people of color writers, directors, producers actually creating the roles because by naturally then they will become fully fleshed out human beings who are powerful and weak and vulnerable and strong and messy and, you know, like, and all of the multidimensional things that human beings are. Um, but that's not going to change really until you, until it stops being just the white male perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, so on point, like that is, that really is the core of the problem because as long as it is the white men telling the stories of other people, you're not, you're only going to get their, um, you know, their perspective, you're not actually going to get the real reflection and the real nuances within it. It's just not going to happen. Um, And even if they do a good job, right? Because it's not like no white man has ever written a good female character, right? But the problem is that 95% of all of the films that we have ever seen were directed by white men. And so those other people are still being filtered through their gaze. And the bigger problem is that because their gaze has been so ubiquitous, we now all feel like that perspective is just normal. Whereas, (laughs) in fact, it is only one perspective. And here in the US, white guys are actually only 30% of the population. So what, so here what we're dealing with is 30% of the population dictating the narrative and worldview of everybody <laughs> to the degree that we accept that as the normal worldview when in fact it is just one worldview. Movies, entertainment, TV shows, they are how we grow up. They shape the narrative. They introduce us to different cultures and different groups and different people. Um, and it's just uh, a recent example is the Mulan movie. Um, did, can you believe that all four screenwriters of that movie were white? Um, I, I actually oh. can't. Like, and somehow I don't feel like that really got spoken about until the movie mm, came out. So my no. assumption was watching the trailer, like probably there are some Chinese people behind like somewhere. <laughs> And then it came out, and I haven't watched it yet because I'm not giving Disney thirty dollars to watch this movie <laughs> no. on my computer. But um, and then like the director's white; she's a woman. Good, mm-hmm. but like, are you kidding me? Like, mm-hmm. The costume designer is white. Cultural nuance. Yeah, the costume designer is white, and they sent her on a tour through Europe to um, find, you know, uh, apparently ancient Asian uh, costumes and museums. In Europe. Um. <laughs> and if that isn't colonialism, I don't know what is. <laughs> it's, 
just and then I've watched all these videos like there are some amazing analysis on YouTube of of like Chinese people um, who really know the culture and the history breaking down all the issues and all of the things that just don't make any sense and it's so clearly just somebody wrote that down and think oh this sounds this sounds exotic you know like that's kind of right. like oh chi yeah she's got really good chi but apparently chi just means breath like it just means life it just it doesn't mean anything but they use it as if it's like it means magic and it, it's it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous but that's well, what you see like yeah sorry, and the really crazy thing is they don't even learn the lesson in the short term so last week it was announced that ron howard is directing this film about some major current chinese figure i think maybe he's a violinist this would be a better anecdote if I could remember what the movie's about. But anyway, the point is there's this white guy, <laughs> again, like just announced right on the heels of the Mulan controversy. And somehow like, I just don't even understand just from the perspective of it being 2020 and not wanting the internet to yell at you, like what? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's just uh, with, <laughs> The Milan situation is just mind-baffling to me because I'm just like, how how did no one think? You know, hey, maybe one, at least one of the four, maybe should be Chinese. Just a, just a thought, you know, maybe you could actually have some authenticity here. Just, just a thought, but, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it does, it is, it is a good illustration of just how thick the walls of the Hollywood bubble are. But to you speak to anybody outside of the Hollywood bubble and they're like, this is bananas. Like, what are you thinking? But then you cross the barrier into the Hollywood bubble and you, you're like, this seems pretty bananas. And like instantly they'll start spewing off all these excuses as to why that needed to be the case. Yeah, and um, I remember when the Me Too movement was happening, I think in 2017. And I think, you know, when that was happening, a lot of women, you know, we were ready for the change, and uh, I think we all believed that it was going to happen. But when the happen, when you know the Me Too movement was happening, it was more false promises and short term change. So, what do you think needs to still be changed in the industry? And as a young filmmaker, yeah, how can we be a part of that change and not just give out false promises and you know make sure you know the change actually sticks this time? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're exactly right. And, and I write about this a bit in the book of if you track what was happening as the studios were scrambling in that post me too, like you actually read what the press releases said, like the headlines were all Fox fixes its woman problem, Paramount hires a female director. Like, <laughs> but if you actually read the text of those press releases and what was changing, it was all surface. It was like the the least possible actual change with the splashiest headlines, all of it, most of it. <laughs> um, so here's here's my perspective. And, and now the problem is that we're in a pandemic, right? The film industry is in deep trouble, uh, both from a how do we make movies anymore perspective and also nobody's gonna go see them in movie theaters for a while perspective, what is gonna happen. So now that the industry is in meltdown, even the incremental progress that we had made, now the conversations back to us are, well girls, 
we really don't have time for any of these like inclusion conversations anymore because now now this industry is in real trouble and we have to get back to the serious business of making real movies. Like those are the conversations. So here's where I've landed. <laughs> after, after, you know, over a decade in the business trying to fight this, after doing all this research for the book, which frankly was eye-opening even to me. I'd been an activist for almost a decade before writing the book, but when but there's a difference between sort of like knowing and actually looking at all of the data and laying it out against the personal stories and like putting it, that was eye-opening even to me. And it kind of radicalized my thinking to the point that I now feel like our energy is mostly wasted trying to fix their, trying to get them to get with the program. I don't think we're going to convince them. We've tried everything. We've shown them all the data. We've shown them the fact that they would be making more money if they let us make our, like, I mean, we've, we've tried all of the arguments. They're not listening. But what I think we have a new opportunity in this generation that has never been available to, to women in our position before, which is that we have the internet. We have very cheap technology that allows us to make films as good as most films that have been made throughout the history of cinema. And because of the combination of those two things, it means that we can make our content and get them directly to audiences without ever needing a gatekeeper to say so. So where I'm putting the energy for the rest of my career, is turning away from trying to fix them and trying to build something better that will eventually make them irrelevant. Um, and, and they're really helping us. Like <laughs> to, to, our, to, to your point about Mulan and these, like they're like, they're, they're the dinosaurs sinking into the La Brea tar pits. Like they are not helping themselves. So all we have to do is build a better alternative. And what, what do I mean by that? So I mean that on the personal level, if you are a woman, or a person of color, or anybody from underrepresented groups, it is your responsibility to find a way to get to make your material and get it to audiences and to not accept no from anybody. <laughs> that is your civic and social responsibility is to tell your stories and get them out into the world. So that, and, and like I said, you can do that now. You don't need somebody to pick you, you can pick yourself. Um, so there's that piece. And then I think the bigger piece is for us to collectively work together to build systems for financing, for distribution, um, that are our own systems that are less toxic, just on every level, um, are more sustainable because indie films aren't making money in their system right now anyway. So like <laughs> trying, I, I feel like if we keep pounding on their door, we're going to get inside the building just at the moment that the roof collapses on our heads. Like that, there. Don't worry about them. Just focus on build, building something better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's oh, that. Oh, you're so powerful. Sorry, I just like it's honestly just invigorating to hear these things because it, you do when you realize the structures within, you know, the film industry, within Hollywood, how it's built, who it's built for. And you, when you realize that there really is, it's it's not built for you. It, it's not like, even even if you win an Oscar, which you're probably not going to do, then like, even, even at that point, you're still going to have to prove yourself. I was listening to an interview with the editor of the new movie, Solar, and she's uh, Oscar nominated, um, but she still feels like she has to prove herself. It's like, okay, now, now that you're 
in the room, you're not here because you deserve it. You have to prove to us that you now deserve it. And so you just have to, what we've seen with these women we've been interviewing, so many of them uh, are distributing their own movies. Uh, Many of them uh, on YouTube, we've talked with a YouTube filmmaker and we talked with someone who has a TV series on YouTube. Um, There's so many opportunities now. You just, you just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, don't wait and, for permission. Mm-hmm. No, you cannot wait for permission. And and what I think is critical is that women have to understand what they are up against. Because what I found in my generation and my training was that what we were told by our parents, by teachers, was that no, no, f- the feminism was solved in the 60s. Sexism was solved in the 60s and 70s. Now you you can do anything like no problem. You just reach for the stars. Blah, 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 blah. And it was at no point <laughs> did anybody say, and you're still facing an uphill battle. And that's really shitty. And we're sorry, but this is the situation. Nobody ever said that to us. So what happened was we got out of school like me and we were like, great, <laughs> we're here. Like, like it just never even occurred to me and, and this is partly privileged as a white woman. You know, I think some women of color realize this earlier, but, but, you know, a lot of women got here and were like, okay, great. We're here. Like, let's do this. And then we ran into the wall and then we spent all of this time blaming ourselves, thinking we were the problem, thinking we weren't good enough, um, that we weren't talented enough, that we weren't like thinking in the right way. Like, so we, we spent all this time trying to improve ourselves and like become exactly the right woman who could bid. And instead we could have, if somebody had just said what was happening, we could have just spent all of that energy trying to find ways around and through and, you know, and build something else. So that, um, that's such a big piece of why I wrote the book, because I just feel like if you know, it's painful, it's painful to know, and you may have to grieve and you may, but like, at least then you can deal with it and you know it's not you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I have a little insert from a survey here. It says 94% responded that they had been sexually harassed or assaulted while working in Hollywood. That is nearly every single woman in the industry. And unfortunately, I feel like if most women heard this statement, they they wouldn't be surprised, which is really saddening. Um, you know, most of the women I know in my life, or all of them, have been sexually assaulted or harassed at one point. Um, and when young women hear these statistics, oh my God, I can't speak statistics, <laughs> um, it can be really, well, it's, it's saddening, but it's, you know, it makes them feel like hopeless um, in this industry. So what would your advice be to them after they hear these you know, statistics um, and they just think there's no hope in um, an industry like this one, what would your advice be to them? It's such a great question. And I, I feel like both with that statistic and with all of these, it's a constant balancing act between not wanting to discourage people with the women with the truth, right? Which sometimes um, you have to be really careful of, right? Because you don't want to just say, well, you're going to get sexually harassed or assaulted. So like but also wanting to give them the truth so that again, then they can deal with it and not blame themselves. So in terms of the sexual harassment, um, 
I would say, I would, I mean, first of all, I'd say if it happens to you, it's not your fault, right? Because that's what that statistic says. Um, also, you should feel empowered to stand up about it um, and, and to speak out and to seek allies in helping you deal with it as you are comfortable. And if you don't want to speak out about it, that's also fine. And thirdly, <laughs> this is why we have to build something else <laughs> because we cannot have like, no, I don't want to keep sending women into a funnel that's going to get them assaulted. Like, are, like, no, that's not all right. Like, come, come over in here and let's make movies together and let's make stuff together and let's make sure that as we are reinventing DNA of a new thing, that that is not part of it. Um, and, and something uh, you said a moment ago about the, that system not being built for us, I think it's important to think about that deeply, that at a cellular level, <laughs> At, at a micro and macro level, that system was built for other people, specifically white men. And so that baked into that DNA is a lot of things, and, and frankly, a lot of the worst specimens of white men. Right? Like, it's not that all white, all white men would necessarily build exactly this system, but the white men who built this system built something incredibly toxic as demonstrated by that statistic. And also just like the treatment of people in general, um, and so as we're creating this new DNA, I just think we have to be so intentional about what does it mean to create an environment that is genuinely inclusive? Um, I think as, as white women who do hold white privilege, we have to be extra careful of that because, because we can fall into the, the trap of um, of white supremacy, you know, even as we don't mean to in these. So like, what does it mean to build an environment that's truly inclusive? How do we set this up in a way where people aren't being abused all the time and, you know, in many different ways? We're telling stories. <laughs> There's no reason why that can't be a joyful and creative and inclusive and just warm environment, right? Like we're, we're not building missiles. <laughs> But that we have to like tease all of this out. Um, and also I think, you know, as part of crafting that DNA, how do we form a, a, an industry where it, comp it isn't as like competition isn't the, the like currency, right? Because again, we're telling stories. There are space for everybody's stories. It's, it's not a zero sum game. And particularly as we, underrepresented voices band together, we need to come with a mindset that as one of us succeeds, all of us succeed. And that we will, the, the rising tide will lift all of our boats and that it's not about you versus me, it's about us together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now with your movies, uh, Imagine I'm Beautiful, your first one that you've wrote, I know that you also produce on that one. Um, We've been talking about producing in the past couple of episodes um, quite a lot. Uh, as an actress, um, how do you think that changes um, the way that the production goes for you? Do you feel more autonomy over um, what happens uh, as a producer? Is that something you'd encourage for more actors to seek? Yeah, um, I mean, definitely. For, I mean, for the thing that I 
there are a lot of things that drive me crazy about producing <laughs> spreadsheets, uh, <laughs> location scouting. Like there's a lot of sort of like administrative junk that I don't love about it. And that means that I should not be a producer as my primary profession. Like I don't, I don't produce other people's stuff because all of that stuff drives me insane. However, the plus side of being a producer is that you get to build the playground. So you get to decide who you work with. You get to, you get to craft all of the elements. You get, to make, you get to craft the environment. You get to make sure that you're hiring people that will create a wonderful place to work. Um, so yes, it's definitely, there's, there's something about the power dynamic of being an actor that, is, that fundamentally puts you at the bottom of the food chain. Um, and so if you can become a producer, if you can, if you can write, write, if you can, if you don't write, if you can partner with a writer and, you know, produce, I think that only helps you um, gain um, control over your career and, and, and over the, the types of stories that you care about and want to put out into the world. Um, just as a tech on the technical side, I will say that, um, so I've been one producer out of several on both of my movies and we have a rule that starting two weeks before production until one week after production, I am not a producer. I'm not an active producer on the film because I think on set, you cannot do a good job of acting your role while somebody's coming to ask you about locations or budget or whatever. So there's, so I've always had the setup that two weeks before production starts, all of my producer responsibilities get divided between other people and that they're not allowed to even talk to me about producer stuff unless it's like this building is on fire or something until production is over. And I think that's an important mm. separation. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Um, again, with uh, Imagine I'm Beautiful, uh, how was that experience for you first acting a role that you have written? Uh, how, how was that different from previous experiences? Well, it's fantastic because you literally get to write the best role you can imagine and then play it. Um, yeah, it's like being a wizard. And I, I find that about screenwriting in general because you write, you write this story and these characters in your living room. And then however many years later, whatever, suddenly you walk, the first day you walk on set and there are hundreds of other grown-ups running around <laughs> building sets because you wrote them and making props because you wrote them and becoming characters that you imagined in your head in your living room. <laughs> and for the next 18 to 21 days, hundreds of other grown-ups basically play like the best game of pretend ever based on this thing that you conceived of. And I cannot describe the joy and power, and I don't mean power over, but I just mean like wizard, which, which power of that happening. It's, it's addictive and amazing. Out of uh, curiosity, what part of uh, filmmaking or what role do you prefer? Um, yeah. So... I've thought a lot about this and I think that I, I like being an actor and writer and producer on my movies. That is what I like that combination because what that means is that I get to be involved in the process from the very first day all the way through the very last day. Um, and the weird and disjointed thing about film as a 
medium <laughs> is that there are actually very few people, if any, on a given production where that's true. Um, because it, you know, it's the only art form where like a hundred plus people come together to make different pieces of it. So I feel like by doing those three roles together in my films, I get the complete artistic um, fulfillment of the whole process. Um, I will say that I like acting and writing better than producing in the sense that I will act and write on other people's stuff because I love those things and I, <laughs> and I produce out of necessity on mine. <laughs> and um, with Bite Me, I know you went on a cross-country tour. Um, what made you and your crew decide to do that? And what would you say are the most important things you learned from that experience? <clears throat> yeah, so my first feature film, Imagine a Beautiful, we made for $80,000. And we got, a we got a theatrical distribution deal from a distributor for that movie, which seemed like we had won the lottery. Like we felt like Cinderella. I mean, the, the, it is so rare for a film of that budget level with no name actors. Nobody knew who we were like, we, this was huge. And then after about six, the first six years of that distribution deal, we had received $5,000 total in earnings from that film through a distributor. And we were like, this, <laughs> wait a minute. Like, it was really fun to have a theatrical distribution deal through a distributor, but like, it's, we had investors, you know, like at a certain point you have to make money on these movies. So then we started asking around and asking all of our friends who are filmmakers. And, and this is something that people really don't like to talk about, right? It's actually really hard to get people to tell you what they actually made on their movies. But what we began to piece together is that basically that was happening to everybody, that even the people who won the lottery of actually getting a distribution deal were seeing almost no money on the back end. And why that is true is a whole other conversation that we don't need to get into necessarily right now. But the, but the, but the end result was that by the time we made my second feature film, Bite Me, we were like, this seems like insanity to keep making films and then throwing them into the system that is not turning out any money on the other side. So um, we were like, let's just try to distribute it ourselves. We know who our audience is. We know where they are. We can book the theaters ourselves. Um, we can get it on the, the platforms or the digital platforms ourselves. Like, what are we giving a distribution company 30 to 50% of the profits when basically we could do everything better ourselves? Um, so we, I, I had a dream, a literal, literal dream is what happened in November of 2018, that we were in an RV driving around the country on something called the Joyful Vampire Tour of America. <laughs> and I called my producing partner, Sarah Wharton, the next morning and I said, so maybe this is insane, but what if we just rented an RV and drove the film around the country? And she said, she's amazing. And she said, yes, and let's put, let's put fangs on the RV. Um, <laughs> and so we did, we, we ended up booking a 51 screening, 40 city, three month tour. And so in May of last year, which now seems in, in the COVID era, this seems even crazier than it was at the time we, uh, but in May of 2019, my husband, myself, and a documentary filmmaker moved into an RV for three months. <laughs> and drove 13,000 miles around the country uh, screening the film 
in a giant circle 51 times all around the country. Um, and it was called the Joyful Vampire Tour of America. And the documentary filmmaker made this docu-series in real time each week as we went. And one of the things I'm proudest of, so not only did she capture the amazing wackiness of this tour. So we invited audience members to come in costume, like we had joyful vampire balls after every screening. So that that was just totally magical and wild and great on its own. And she captured that in the documentary. But the other thing we did is we we had said to ourselves from the beginning, we want to we want to give everything we're learning to other filmmakers so that whether we succeed or not in terms of turning a profit, um, that that other people can take what we did and then innovate on it and, and do this themselves. So in the docu-series, we reveal everything, like how many tickets we sold each week, how much money we made, how much money we spent, how we did our marketing, um, everything. Uh, how you empty poop out of an RV, <laughs> which was <laughs> not, not my friends ever. Um, but anyway, so, and all of that's on YouTube so it, for free. So if, if anybody's interested, there's the Joyful Vampire Tour of America series on YouTube. It's very fun. Kiwi Callahan made it. She's amazing. Um, so what I learned is that we made more money in ticket sales alone during the first week of that tour than I made from my entire first feature film through a distributor. Wow. So what I learned <laughs> is that, again, we are better off building our own systems. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's just, uh, it, it's honestly just so eye-opening. And uh, as, as financing is such a huge, I mean, that is the most, one of the most essential parts if you actually want to make the film. Um, and we see that the reason uh, female documentary filmmakers largely uh, do, do quite a lot better than uh, fiction filmmakers um, is because they don't have to go into these executive um, boards and ask for money, uh, which are largely led by white men who don't trust women with money. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you can... Mm -hmm. uh, and you see that there's a lot different when you can do the crowdfunding and when you can distribute it in different ways. I've also, you know, the artist struggle have been glorified quite a lot, but it, it shouldn't be. Um, and there's so many different ways, like, uh, as you see, like doing that tour, um, that's incredible. Uh, that's incredible. And I can't imagine also just getting to meet these people, uh, oh you know, <laughs> like that must have been so like, wow. Yeah. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, bar none. I mean, it was, and it, and it made me a better artist because to travel to Vicksburg, Mississippi and hear what they thought about my movie and then go to Seattle and hear what they, like the level of audience feedback and engagement that I got to experience in response to this thing we had made was so much richer and more beautiful than you would normally get. You get that community, uh, it's, that's beautiful. I also know, um, you know, it, I know you, you've written your book, um, it's fantastic for anyone out there. Please go read it. It's worth every penny. Um, you will probably cry, but you know, at the end, you will also be <laughs> radicalized and ready for the revolution. Um. Thank you. So at the same time that my book came out, Gloria Steinem's latest book came out, and the title of her most recent book is 
the truth will set you free, but first it will really piss you off. <laughs> and I feel like that's the perfect description of the experience of reading my book, <laughs> which is like, right, you might cry in the middle, but keep going because <laughs> I promise there's it like get it, there's hope at the end. Yes, yes. And I know that you also do uh, screenwriting courses. Uh, amazing. Um, like, what was that? Was that just, you know, wanting to bring other people in, teach other people? Uh, how has that been for you? I know you're about to start one, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's been a huge gift. And that actually started with COVID. It's been one of the surprising gifts of, of this time. Um, so what I've realized in teaching screenwriting is that the way screenwriting is taught, not that this should surprise us, but the way screenwriting is taught is uh, from the white male perspective. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, if you look at like all of the great screenwriting books, like the ones that everybody uses to teach screenwriting out of, they are all written by white men. So here I was, so people had kept asking me to teach screenwriting. And I, I was like, I've never taken a screenwriting class. How can I teach screenwriting? I, and I haven't, like I, I'm, I figured it out by doing. Um, so then I started reading all these books. So I was like, okay, well I better read at least some screenwriting books before I'm gonna try to teach it. And as I was going through, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Like baked into these books is the formula that is the white male view of the world. Mm -hmm. Oh dear. <laughs> so then I was, so then the screenwriting has become how do you teach women? I mean, so far all my students have been women, which is probably <laughs> surprising. Um, how do you teach women to write screenplays when we have? very few examples of screenplays that have actually been written from the female perspective and 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 like partly because so many screenplays that have been written by women are still written through that white male gaze so that's been the exploration but it's so exciting <laughs> so so in these classes i feel like we're sort of you know out in the wild west just trying stuff and like but I, but I feel like my job as a screenwriting teacher in this context is just to, is to not set up rules of any kind or like, be like, here you have to do, like, this is what a screenplay is, but instead with each person to sort of draw out the stories that they have naturally inside and also draw them out in a way that they come out in the modality that is natural to that person, that woman to telling stories. And the results have been so exciting. <laughs> Uh, at the end of every screenwriting class, I'm like, this, like these screenplays are so much more interesting than any movie that is coming out right now. Um, so then I also started teaching classes in uh, production, in like indie film development and production to, so that hopefully now these screenplays can also get made. So anyway, it's been very exciting. And um, with your book, I um, one line that stuck out to me was the industry I'd spent my entire life working and aching to be a part of simply didn't want me, not because I wasn't talented, but because I was the wrong kind of woman. Can you expand that for our listeners? Yeah, so the, the reason the, the book is called The Wrong Kind of Women is that... Um, 
So I did over a hundred interviews with women, mostly women and some, some men too, up and down the industry. And I was just listening to women's stories and basically to a person, <laughs> the story was, oh, and then they told me I had to change. Like if I could just change this my, about myself, then they would hire me. Or if I could just be a little more like this or just a little bit more like that or a little bit less like this, then, and what I, and I was slowly realizing like, Oh, so basically all of us are individually told that we're the wrong kind of woman. Like, it's not that they don't like women. It's just like, we're not, we're the wrong kind. And so what happens then is in isolation, again, if this isn't explained to you, what happens is you go, oh, it's not that they don't like women. I'm, I'm just, the, I'm not the right kind of woman. When in reality, <laughs> there is no right kind of woman they just don't like women or they don't want, they, they like them in a very specific context, but they are not interested in, in having mm -hmm. us have power or perspective or voices. Yeah. Now we do always ask about women who do inspire us, um, personal and professional. Is there anyone you want to give a shout out? We say anyone, but you know, it's always more than one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Ava DuVernay has been a huge inspiration to basically all of us. <laughs> um, what I really respect about her is not just her as a filmmaker, but also the way she has gained a platform and then used that, plat weaponized that platform to, to elevate other women. Um, something that is really interesting and that I explore a bit in the book is it's, it, it can be easy for people to rail against the system, rail against the machine until they're in it. And then you see a lot, a lot of people go very quiet and get very timid the second they are chosen by the system. And something I really admire about Ava is that she hasn't done that. And she has really continued to speak truth to power. Um, and I, I, find, I find her incredibly inspiring. Um, I mean, there are, there are many. I could keep going. <laughs> um, quickly, just before we finish, back just quickly to um, steer back when you were talking about your cross-country tour. I know um, you said, you know, you were very transparent when it came to, you know, talking about how much money you made each week and, you know, about your finance. You were very transparent um, and you spoke about that a lot in docuseries. And I think for our listeners, I think that's extremely important, especially women. I think we find it hard to talk about money sometimes. Um, and I think I would say thank you for talking about in your docuseries. I'm definitely going to watch that now. And um, yeah, I think women need to talk about that more. So if that, if our listeners is going to take something away from this podcast, I think that was really important for you to say. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I'll, I'll, I'll yes and that in the sense that I, I think it's totally important for women to talk about money. And I also just think it's important for be, us to be transparent with each other in general about everything because they, part of the way the powerful stay powerful is by isolating us from each other, making us ashamed to speak about our experiences. And therefore, we continually end up in these bubbles of feeling like we're the only ones, we're the problem. It's not. And the more that we share information, <laughs> the more it becomes increasingly apparent that actually it's the system that's broken and not us. 
So I think transparency is important on that level. And it's also important on the level that if we are going to build our own sandbox, as I hope very sincerely that we do, um, that's hard, right? It's, it's not that hard to just like invent a new industry alongside one that exists. So if we're gonna succeed at that, we, we're gonna have to do it together and we're gonna have to do it in sharing information and being like, hey, I tried this thing, it didn't work, but like, here's this part of it that did work, maybe you could try and then you take that in. But, but unless we're sharing results and information, we're not gonna succeed. Mm, exactly. Uh Thank you for coming on. Um, I think, well, me and Avita were so excited for you to come on for you so long now, I think since July. And we knew this was going to be a great episode and you've just proved us right. I think our listeners <laughs> are going to take so much lessons and um, from this podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, for speaking about all of this. We need as many voices as we can have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything you want to plug, promote? Uh, where can people find find you? Um, they can find me on my website, which is NaomiMcDougallJones.com. Um, and you can find the book, the films, the web series, all of that there. Um, I think, no, I think I would just rather end by saying again to any anybody listening who is a woman or a person of color or somebody whose voice has been systematically and on purpose kept out of the system, that it is your civic duty and social duty and moral duty to tell your stories and find a way to, t- to make them and get them to audiences. And that is the only North Star you need to pay attention to. This has been the 14th episode of Making It Women Fall. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Now, if you'd like to see more stuff like this, uh, go follow us on Instagram at Making It Women Inform. We post so much stuff there. Uh, recommendations, discussions, statistics, research, conversations. You can also ask us questions and our guests' questions. It's, it's just a fun time, so go check that out. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the next one. All of our socials will be linked in the description box. See you next week.